Hello, this is Father Bill Watson with Sacred Story Institute Jesuit Podcast. Hello, this is Father Bill Watson, and this is a Sacred Story Institute Jesuit Podcast. We're happy to have you with us this day. We're going to be uh, talking with Father Colleen Dinlanzer Nasame, a Jesuit from Cameroon. Father Nasame was born on the 25th of July, 1974. He is a Roman Catholic priest of the Society of Jesus. He entered the Jesuits at about the age of 23. Went to uh, Before that, he did his high school experiences in Cameroon. After entering the Society of Jesus, he got a Bachelor of Arts in History. He got his Baccalaureate in Philosophy at the Gregorian University at the Arupe College of Jesuit School of Philosophy and Humanities in Harare, Zimbabwe, supported by and under, underwritten by the Gregorian University. He worked from 2005 to 2008 the Jesuit School of Theology, Constituent College of the Catholic University of Eastern Africa in Nairobi, Kenya, where he got a Bachelor of Arts in Theology. He was in Boston College in the United States from 2016 to 2018, where he did a degree in theology and ministry. He is primarily interested in pastoral ministry. He is currently getting a degree in transformational spirituality at Seattle University, where he will take that back and most likely do spiritual ministry in Cameroon, possibly as a retreat director, possibly as a pastor. Father Nasame came from Cameroon. His native language is his tribal language, which he'll explain in the first part of the interview. But then English is his primary second language. Our interview today is uh, broken up into three sections. The first part of it is uh, Father Nasame talking about the experience of growing up in Cameroon, about his family, his faith, his cultural experiences, I asked him about Cameroon's uh, geography, its uh, climate, its political situation, its economies, its religious identities. And I asked him also to articulate some points of Cameroon's history that the audience would be interested in knowing. So this is the first part of our interview with Father Colleen Nisame, a Jesuit priest from Cameroon, Africa. And I'd like to welcome you to our audience. So welcome, Father Nasame. Thank you very much, Father Bill Watson, for having me on your podcast today. We're very excited. First of all, let's look at your name. Is your given first name Colleen, C-O-L-L-E-E-N? Is that common in Cameroon? That is um, it's not common in Cameroon. I think it's very, very rare. We don't have a lot of um, Irish or Gallic people resident in Cameroon. However, the few we had, I was fortunate to be named by one of the few, a priest oh. from Ireland who named me Colleen. And actually that name Colleen, <laughs> whenever I'm introduced, people will be expecting to listen from a human. Right. Because Colleen signifies a beautiful young girl in Gaelic, but I'm, right. a, but I'm a man. <laughs> that's right. Well, that's good. It's a striking name. And your middle name, Dinlanzer, it sounds a little bit German or Dutch. And what does it mean? Yeah, Dinlanzer means it is a name that belongs to the Lamso tribe of Cameroon. And Dinlanzer okay. means it's a question who shows the way? And it answers it itself. God shows the way. Wow. Powerful. Yes. Powerful name. And your, <laughs> and your last name, Nasame, N-S-A-M-E, does that have a name or a significance? Is that a, is that a tribal uh, it's name? A, it's a tribal name, the family name, indeed my father's name. And that name signifies I don't want problems or <laughs> problems are finished. That is what the name means. <laughs> well, that sounds like a good wish for all of us, I would think. Yes. 
Well, good. Well, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, as we get in here, let's just get a little bit of your background. So tell me about your, your growing up in Cameroon and your family. Yeah, Bill, thank you for this question. I am from a family of um, nine siblings. Nice. Father and mother, three girls and six boys. And um, nice. death has been part of the history of my family. We lost them, four siblings, within a space of 10 years, 2000 to 2010. My father is of late. Today, we are six siblings, four boys and two girls with my mother. Indeed, I grew up in Cameroon with a Christian background. We are precisely of um, the Roman Catholic faith tradition. And okay. then culturally, I grew, we, we, uh, we belong to the Saw clan of the Northwest region of Cameroon, and we speak Lamso, which is a language of our ancestors. So this is the family structure within which I grew up, and then the cultural setting, which is I grew up speaking the Lamso language. And is English your second language or is French your second language? English is my second language. Are you a part of British or, or French Cameroon? Well, I would say both. <laughs> both. Okay, very yes. good. Yes, both because um, it is, um, I'm both today because of colonial legacy. Cameroon was colonized by both Britain and France. Okay. So today we have inherited these two languages and to succeed in Cameroon, in whatever domain, especially um, in administration, in academic life, in public service, you are expected to have a good mastery of the two languages, English and good. French. Excellent. Excellent. Go, go back to your siblings. You've lost three of your siblings. Was it from natural diseases or accidents or what? Yeah, absolutely. I lost four siblings of mine. Four siblings. Wow. Yes. These were of natural causes. They suffered from heart disease and they died from um, accident or okay. causes other than that of which was purely medical heart disease. Yes. Well, we remember them all to the Lord in our prayers. So certainly we've had the experience of seeing both life and death that early in your life in Cameroon. Absolutely. You said you were raised a Roman Catholic. My sense is is that the majority population of Cameroon is Christian, and then maybe 60 to 70 percent, and then the rest might be Muslim. What is the breakdown in terms of Christian denominations in Cameroon? According to a World Bank statistic that also gave the population of Cameroon, it says that nearly two-fifths of the population of Cameroon is Roman Catholic. Two-fifths, okay. Yes, and more than a quarter is Protestant. It is also noted that um, Sunni Muslim account for about one-fifth of the population of Cameroon, and the um, adherents of animist or traditional religions account for a small percentage of believers. Did you know people from the Sunni or Protestant communities or the animist communities when you were growing up? Yes, I've known a lot of people um, from the Protestant community I grew up because I grew up in a town called Tumbel, and this town had important influence of Protestantism, Protestants. Uh, okay. Yes, so most of my primary school friends, my childhood friends were Protestant because Protestants evangelized this part of the country the southwest oh. part of the country. Would they have been Anglican or Baptist or Lutheran? Yes, you have a good amount of Lutherans. You also okay. have Calvinists. You also have okay. uh, Anglicans. Where, where Did you grow up around a lot of Roman Catholics? Were they a smaller percentage in your hometown? Well, in my hometown, it's tricky in the sense that I grew up in different towns. Since my father was a public servant, he was okay. being transferred from different places. So in most of the places I grew up, I would say um, Catholicism was dominating. Like I was okay. born in Bengui, and Bengui is heavily Catholic as opposed to Protestants. Okay, this okay. is Bengui where I, I, I grew up at one moment, and when we were transferred to Tombell, Tombell had a good amount of Protestants as compared to Catholics. Okay, yes, so very good. So it depends on whatever town 
I was that can determine how influenced I was by any of these faith traditions. Okay, would you describe yourself and your family as devout Catholics or just kind of practicing Catholics? My family is both devout and practicing. Okay. (laughs) Yes, devout in the sense that adhered to the teachings of Jesus Christ. Practicing Catholics, we try to put into practice what Jesus says. And Catholic teachings have been the foundation of what our parents have wished us to lay our lives on. So when we practice today, we are practicing the Catholic teachings. We are both devotional, we are both practitioners of this faith. Okay, very good. The practice of Christianity and Catholicism in Africa is more intense and lively than it is in the United States or Western Europe, Absolutely. from my experience. Okay. Absolutely. You are, your experience is correct. It's right. Okay. And a little bit, you've been in the United States studying on the uh, West Coast, or the Pacific Northwest. Tell our listening audience, what is Cameroon like? What is its geography? It's on the Western coast of Africa. How does it differ from where you're living in Seattle currently? Okay. In Seattle, Seattle, I love Seattle in the first place because Seattle is similar to where I come from in Cameroon, Tumble in terms of geography and Cameroon in general. When I compare to Boston, Boston has extreme climate situation, weather situation, there's a hot summer and then there is the snow winter. Right. However, in Seattle, I experience a little of snow and more of cold and more of, of sunshine, which we are currently experiencing. We are talking at the close of summertime here in Seattle. Now, back in Cameroon, we just have two weather conditions, the, the, the raining season and the dry season. So cold okay. temperature um, is determined by the weather. If it is rainy season, it's obviously cold. If it is dry season, it's obviously hot. I feel a lot of comfort being in Seattle because I have lived this kind of climate back home in Cameroon. Okay. Is Cameroon humid? Do they have a lot of humidity? Yeah, the difference has been humidity, especially in Douala, where I did a good amount of my experience as a a candidate for the study of Jesus. Douala has a lot of humidity. A little bit of history of Cameroon. People probably don't know much about the country of Cameroon. Can you tell our listening audience some of the uh, critical points of Cameroon history? that you think that they should know that would help us understand you and the people of Cameroon? I know you can't go to the whole of history, but there may be some highlights that you can pinpoint that are significant in terms of sharing with people. Okay, thank you very much, Bill, for this question. I think there is a critical moment Cameroon is going through right now, and this is the Anglophone crisis. Every historian of Cameroon at this moment will not write a history book of Cameroon without referring to Anglophone crisis. And this is related to events of um, 1961, the independence of Cameroon. As I earlier said, Cameroon was under the colonial rule of both Britain and France. So at the time of independence, these countries entered into a two-state federation, the French part of Cameroon and the English part of Cameroon, before Federal Republic of Cameroon, in the sense that the French-speaking part had their own system of government, and the English-speaking part had their own system of government based on the British system. We are blessed to have two types of culture. So it seems in 1972, the former president of Cameroon, Amado Aijo, transformed us from a federal structure of government to a unitary structure of government. When President Paul Bia came to power in 1984, he changed the name to La République du Cameroon, which was okay. the original name of the French administered East Cameroon, that's the French part of Cameroon. Some opposition coming from Anglophones, elites, interpreted this change 
as a kind of cessation from the spirit of union between the two Cameroons and amounted to the forced assimilation of Anglophone identity. Okay. This identity is a serious crisis in Cameroon at the moment because the English part of Cameroon, where I come from, they are feeling a kind of being assimilated by the French part of Cameroon. Okay. So there is violence, there is the fight for cessation in Cameroon today. And well, until, yes, it is not in the news. We don't get it very often in the news, but I can tell you and the audience listen to us, it's a very serious um, um, uh, situation Cameroon is experiencing at the moment, where there is the assimilation of the whole population to become French, whereas the original desire or what is best suited for a society is to put our differences together and enjoy our identity that has been shaped by history and above all shaped by God. So forcing Anglophone Cameroonians into following French legal system, into following French educational system by way of helping us to abandon our English heritage has mm. been something tantamount to the violation of people's rights in Cameroon. So Anglophone Cameroonians today are really, really um, protesting against this move. There have been a lot of conscientization. These things took, this transformation took place in the 60s. Today, we Anglophone Cameroonians have been growing into more awareness, reading our history into new light. When we look at the marginalization of people, we tend now to reflect and say, this shouldn't be the case. So, in fact, this experience is what is animating me at this moment of speaking to you. For uh, a little clarity for people who are listening, when you say Anglophone for Cameroon, do you have white European population and tribal population, or are you speaking principally of the tribal peoples identifying either as Frenchophiles or Anglophiles? Yes, you see, Bill, Cameroon demographic linguistic structure is ethnic and linguistic composition. We, we need to understand this a bit to answer the question you have just asked. We have okay. about 200 ethnic groups in Cameroon, and um, these 250 ethnic groups represent different tribes. We have about 250 tribes in Cameroon. Now, in terms of national identity, we don't use our various languages native languages. We use two languages from colonial heritage, English and French. This was in okay. a way to create harmony, such that there is no one tribe that can dominate the other. That makes sense. So what all of those 200 plus tribal groups, would they all have had their own unique language? Well, they have their own unique language, but they are grouped into two main groups. You have the Bantus, okay. and then you have the Tikas. The Tikas, you find them mostly of the Anglophone regions, and then the Bantus, okay. mostly of the Francophone regions. So you will see that the two main groups is determined also by their geographical location. So those of the center, those of the east, they speak mostly the Bantu language. Those of the southwest, those of the northwest, they speak mostly of the Tika, they, they fall under the Tika category. Has Cameroon escaped a lot of the violence some of the other African nations have gone through with regards to Muslim violence against other groups? Yes, relatively, Cameroon have not had a religious war or war okay. based because of religious persecution. We are really blessed, and that is why Pope John Paul II, when he came to okay. proclaim um, um, the post-synodal exhortation, I think it was the question of relative stability that made him to choose Cameroon. Okay, very good. Yes. Would that have been in the 1980s then, I expect? That is the 1980s, absolutely. Okay. One last question, a little overview of Cameroon. What is its economy like? What does it draw? Uh, what are its natural resources? And just the cultural experience of uh, being from Cameroon. Yeah, Cameroon is, um, is very rich in terms of 
culture and economics, Cameroon is basically supported by agriculture. So agriculture is constitutes 70% of the economy. And then um, the second and the tertiary constituted the rest of 30 or the rest 30 percent. So most people in Cameroon are farmers, agriculture. Cocoa is a main export product, coffee is a main export product, as well as timber. Timber is a main export product. So when sometime I, I was in 2018, it was said that Cameroon was one of the African countries that exported a lot of timbers to the United States. So I sometimes may look at some furniture, I feel proud and happy that maybe from some mahogany plants and tree or, or trees that came from the equatorial forest in the eastern part of Cameroon. However, Cameroon also is endowed with minerals. Okay. And, um, and that with, with, with minerals and other natural resources, like um, there is a bit of gold in Cameroon. And uh, as I said, timber is a huge, um, we have a huge reservoir of timber, which is being exported to Europe and some part of America. As I also said that um, Cameroon has a good amount of resources, like um, we have tea, good quality tea that is okay. coming from the southwest southwest and northwest regions of Cameroon. So basically these are some of the economic power which we economic resources we can identify with Cameroon. If we Very look good. at culturally um, Cameroon is, is defined as Africa in miniature. This means that what you find in most other African countries, you find it in Cameroon. Economical in terms of mineral, that is true. Culturally as well, you have, um, I said, the, the, the two main groups, the Bantus and the and the Chicas. The Bantus in Cameroon share the same cultural realities like neighboring countries like the Congo, the DRC, in terms of dressing. You find your dressing looking similar. And then okay. also for the women, both for, for both for women and men, the dressing looks similar. The language sometimes also, someone speaking from neighboring countries like Congo or the DRC can easily understand some of the languages in Cameroon because as Bantu, Bantu is a very wide group in the whole of Africa. So okay. sometimes when you speak a language in Cameroon, someone who is from neighboring country can easily understand what you are saying. Okay. Yes. Good. W one, uh, one last question before we leave. Looking to the future of the political crisis right now, the Anglophone crisis, do you perceive it as resolving peaceably or that it will be an ongoing challenge for the future? It is absolutely an ongoing challenge because all government's efforts have failed. So... Okay. We are now at another um, attempt that the dialogue initiated by the government, which was one of its efforts to resolve the crisis, have failed. So where we, the, the, the Catholic Church has been playing a pivotal role in terms of bringing the two main troops fighting in this crisis, that is, they call the La République, as they will say, and then the secessionists. They have okay. had a good amount of dialogue the, the country recently organized a major dialogue, which has failed because resolutions become like promises and they are never implemented. It is close to two months since that national dialogue went. Nothing has been implemented. So people become more and more suspicious of the government just to buy time. And then the more they buy time, people continue to suffer the consequences. The, 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 the civilians are caught in between. They're taken hostage. The poor, the marginalized, are taken hostage in this okay. crisis. So, in as much as the root cause of it is not tackled by the government, I think there will continue to be this violence. It will go exponentially. I think so, from my observation and from my readings and from listening to the news and talking to family members back home and other friends who are interested and other friends of Cameroon. Very good. We're talking to Father Kali Nisame, a Jesuit from Cameroon. And when we come back after our break, I'm going to ask him about his personal life, uh, when he decided to be a Jesuit, and other things about his 
uh, apostolic experiences as both a young Jesuit and as an ordained Jesuit. So uh, thank you, Father Colleen. We'll be right back to you. This is Father Bill Watson. Welcome back to Sacred Story Institute Jesuit Podcast. We've been chatting with a Jesuit from Cameroon, Father Colleen Nassame. We spoke first about his family background, his life growing up in Cameroon. The second section of our podcast, our conversation, I asked Father Colleen about the experience of how he decided to be a Jesuit, his conversion story, if you will, how old he was how supportive his family was, some experiences uh, that he had as a young Jesuit that shaped him, uh, the most rewarding apostolic experiences that he's had, some very profound life transformative experiences that he will describe for you that I think he'll be kind of blown away by, and then what he hoped to do uh, with his degree once he completes it at Seattle University. So this is the second part of our conversation with Father Colleen Nasame, and this is Sacred Story Institute Jesuit podcast. So we're back with Father Colleen Nasame, a Jesuit from Cameroon. And we spoke in the first section about Cameroon as a country, its geography, its history, its different peoples, its political realities. And this time I'd like to get a little more personal and talk to Father Colleen about his religious life. And if you can tell our audiences, when did you decide to be a Jesuit and what was the thing that influenced you? Well, I decided to be a Jesuit when at the age of 18. Yes. That's the same same age as myself. Oh, really? <laughs> Good yeah. to know that. So I decided to become a Jesuit at the age of 18. But prior to the age of 18, while still in grade school, I was the vocation to the priesthood was born into me. Okay. Yes, it just happened. I was at prayer at mass one Sunday with my parents and um, I admired a priest preaching and sharing the word of God and people were happy. And how old were you, Father Cohen, at this time? At that time, I was seven years when that idea came to me. I just said it to my parents. I want to be like that man who is talking on the altar, like that priest of the altar. I don't know whether I was speaking by myself or it was like the Holy Spirit speaking through me sure, because sure. my parents were very surprised that I'm still so a kid and will, a baby and will, will utter um, such a profound desire by words, I want to be a priest. So, Was the man who was preaching, was he a diocesan priest? Was he a religious priest? Was he a Jesuit? He was a diocesan priest. So what did your parents were surprised? Were they upset? My parents, they were praying that one of their children should become a reverend sister or a priest. So when I told them, while they were surprised that I could say such a thing as a child, it was a welcoming experience for them. It was like God started to answer their prayer request for a child of theirs to become a priest. So that's very nice. I grew up with that desire to become a priest until the age of 18 when it fully got matured by my experience of encountering with St. Ignatius of Loyola through reading of a history book. Naturally, I felt being a soldier was an option I also had. I wanted to be a soldier to, to defend my country from aggressors to defend my country as a patriot. So when I saw St. Ignatius and soldiers for Christ, Ah. this was very striking for me. (laughs) And then as I read further about Ignatius and discovered soldiers for Christ imply being soldier for the kingdom of God. Nice. That goes to your, your second name about, you know, who will lead. Dinslander, exactly. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely, Bill, who will lead? So just to get this clear, you didn't didn't meet a Jesuit. You read about the Jesuits and Ignatius of Loyola through books, and that was your first encounter. Absolutely. I only met the Jesuit for the first time when I went to place my application. Until then, I met the Jesuit through a history book, True Encounter with St. Ignatius of Loyola as soldier. 
So when you applied to the society, what did the Jesuits say to you? Were they uh, immediately say, we think you have a vocation or we want we want to make you wait a bit to uh, see if this is really authentic? Absolutely. I was asked to wait a bit and this took three years. Three years? Okay, wow. Yes. This took three years. When I contacted the Jesuits, it was such a beautiful experience. The, the, the welcome was a kind of assurance to me that this is where I belong. What year did you finally enter the society? I entered the society in 1998, after my okay. university studies. I waited three years because the first year I was asked to enter, and um, I felt that since I am entering the second year of the university, maybe just go three years and finish a degree. Besides that, it was also of my own desire to wait I felt, let me um, think more and more deeply and give my final fiat, my final yes for the society of Jesus for Jesus. So you were 20, 23 years old? I was 23 years old. And your experience in the novitiate, uh, tell me what you, where you did the novitiate. Was it in Cameroon or another African country? I did my novitiate in Cameroon in the town of Bafusam at St. Ignatius of Loyola, Jesuit novitiate. Very good. Where did you study philosophy? I studied philosophy in Arupi College in Zimbabwe, Harare. So yes. uh, you, do, you did philosophy and there's a period of Jesuit formation after philosophy called Regency, which is a pastoral uh, year or two. What did you do for that, Father Colleen? I did my pastoral, uh, I did my regency in the Ivory Coast. I acted as a youth chaplain for St. Philip Parish, one of our Jesuit parishes in Abubu, Abidjan. And also I was what we usually call, what we say the minister of the community, in charge of administration okay. work of the community and provisions for my fellow Jesuit companions. What would you say were some of the highlights of your Jesuit formation before you were ordained a priest, experiences that kind of confirmed you that, yes, this is what I want to do, and I'm going to move forward with requesting ordination? What were those experiences that were kind of road markers along the way that were very important for you? One of the experiences I had that confirmed me, really, I have to stand as a soldier for the kingdom of God in the manner of St. Ignatius of Loyola, was during the civil war of uh, 2010 in Ivory Coast. And then okay. during this war, I was almost killed. I was caught by rebels who mistook me to be a militia man for the government. It was a very traumatizing experience because... Were you taken hostage as a Jesuit? I was taken hostage for about one hour at Abobo, just about some 10, 15 minutes walk to our Jesuit parish. What happened? Wow. The whole city, Abidjan was in, was in war during this time in 2010, when following post-election violence, presidential election violence between President Laurent Gbagbo and then the incumbent, Alassane Ouattara. So there was a lot of gunshots going on in the parish. It happened wow. that the bishop, the archbishop of Abidjan, requested all priests to leave the parish. I was working as a deacon, preparing for my ordination. The bishop asked us to leave the parish because it was becoming too dangerous. Mm. My parish priest, who was also a Jesuit, was in Cameroon for a province meeting. He couldn't come in, so I was in charge of the parish. And I felt that if I should leave the parish, it was a betrayal of the people of God because they were still there. In All my right. mind, I felt that I will only leave this parish only when there was nobody for me to preach the word of God because as a deacon, my main job was to preach the word Good in for the you. absence of the priest. I stood... Right my ground, and I told the archbishop, the parish will not be closing. I can only close when the catechist, all parishioners, there is no body in this parish <laughs> to evangelize. It was a striking moment. I informed my local superior that I will not be leaving the parish because, sincerely, 
in my conscience, I will be betraying Jesus Christ. I have to stand with the people of God in all situations, whether difficult or easy. See, that gets back to your middle name again, Father Colin. Digilander, uh, who will lead? Who will lead? I will lead. Absolutely. <laughs> so as the violence intensified, I felt that one of the measures to take within the parish would be to evacuate the children, the most vulnerable. I took it upon myself to transport them in the parish car. It was in the course of this transportation, I was arrested by the rebels. They took me hostage for, for about an hour, and they were almost killing me in the sense that I've never had gun pointed at me. So this happened. So the fact that I was like a spy for the regime. Okay. Yes, I was a spy for the regime, and they had their own way of looking at Catholics and um, Christians. So I sat in the car. They asked me to come out from the car, which I said, I will not come out from the car. I will sit in the car, and I will entertain and be obedient to all what they want me. I was really afraid to leave the car in the sense that they may take they may kick, they may take the children and kidnap them and take them where no one will ever see them. So I stood my grandfather sure. in the car and they pointed the gun at me. He shot in the air to warn me that I should come out of the car. If I don't mm. come out of the car, he is going to shoot the second bullet into me. That wow. is when I knew that. I was going to die my very first time in life to experience that last moment when death will come. Were you 20, 27, 28 years old? At this time, I was about 29 years going to 30 okay. years. Yes. Okay, wow. I was going to 30 years. So finally, in my heart, I look at the children in the car and my last prayer was, Lord, into your hands, I commend our spirits with those of the children. I looked at the boy standing in front of me with the pistol. I could only think of Stephen, his eyes open, seeing his killers and looking at God. And I smiled at this rebel. Mm. He couldn't shoot at me again and led us to our final destination. So this was a powerful experience. I said, wow. I will stand my grounds for this to respond to God in my vocation as a priest. Immediately after this incident, this was in the month of around August, and in December, I was ordained priest. Wow. Now, when that happened to you in the heat of the moment, as we say, when that gun's being pointed at you, and you think, I'm not going to live, God gives you grace and courage, and you're just, you have to be present in the moment. Was there any time, a day or two or a week after that, where you kind of fell apart or thought, oh my God, this could have been all over, where you got anxious? Well, the, I went into total silence after this experience. It okay. was very difficult for me to recall it in the sense that I felt God handled everything totally such that I had no power of my own to do anything after that, even to recall it. It was a moment of complete trust in God that he was wow. really, really present and handled this for me such that even... Recalling it immediately was not necessary. Just my silence could speak that I underwent something very powerful. It was like Mary just meditating all these things in her heart. Right. So that is how my experience, I could only start to speak after about three or four days to my companions and to my parishioners. So I would call that kind of even an experience of reverence where you had this profound encounter with God and the only thing that it could call forth from you was silence. Nothing. Absolutely. Very, Absolutely. very, very moving. Very moving. Yes. Thank you for that. That's a great experience to share with people. I think they will be very deeply moved by that. And anybody who is out there listening who is in, a, in any moment of profound crisis or anything, God's watching over you and has a plan. So surrender your life to him and learn from Father Colleen what he did. Father Colleen, before we end this second section, I'd like to jump some years ahead. You're doing an academic degree at Seattle University right now. Tell us what the degree is and how you hope to use it when you go back to Cameroon. 
Yes, I'm doing an academic degree um, in transformative spirituality. Spirituality is a domain that is gaining prominence in the church today and in the world in general. So I'm hoping that when I go back to Cameroon, I'll be able to use this degree. First of all, I can fit in various capacity, maybe working in the parish or maybe working in the novitiate. But my fundamental desire is to work in the retreat houses of retreats. So Excellent. I hope to use this degree to help in the transformation in a spiritual way, the lives of others. Well, excellent. Well, maybe when you go back to Cameroon, if we're still being allowed to fly internationally, you bring me over there and we'll talk about Ignatian spirituality and retreats because that's the work that I do. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) Father Bill, you'll be most welcome. (laughs) Thank you so much. We're talking with Father Colleen Nisame, a Jesuit from Cameroon. We've just talked about his life as a vocation, his call to the Society of Jesus, important experiences that he's had. And when we come back for our third and final section, I will talking about the experience of him in the United States and how he sees things politically. So we thank Father Colleen Nisame, and we'll take a short break here and come back for our third and final interview section with Father Colleen Nisame. Hello, this is Father Bill Watson. We're back with part three of our conversation with Cameroon Jesuit Father Colleen Nisame. We've gone over his growing up in Cameroon, his experience as a Jesuit, and up to ordination. And in this last section, we're going to be looking at the experience of the United States, the political realities. I asked Father Colleen what he thought about Barack Obama being the first black president of the United States. He compared Barack Obama to the very different personality of Donald Trump. I asked him what his experiences are of each man and how the people in Africa looked at them. And then I had him assess the issue of racism in the United States and whether it was his experience being here for four years, whether America was systemically racist, and if he had had any experiences of racism since he's been here. And finally, I asked him to articulate the most powerful spiritual experience of his life and how it shaped him. So this is Sacred Story Institute Jesuit Podcast, and this is our third and final set of conversations with Father Colleen Nesame. So I guess my first question is, is that the United States uh, elected its first African-American president in Barack Obama. And now we have somebody who is a profound polar opposite, and the country seems very divided. Father Colleen, how do you assess the differences between your own reactions to President Barack Obama, President Trump, uh, these two men, and how do people in Africa view what's happening right now? Do they see it as much of a crisis as many people in this country do? How did how did you and uh, people in Africa that you know of respond to President uh, Obama? Let me go back to the election of President Obama, which was that that make history all over the world that a black has become president of the United States. I think um, in Africa, it was um, such um, a moment of emotion and joy. People read it in terms of um, relationship between white and black, what history has conditioned people. So it boosted the image of the um, United States in Africa in the sense that a black man has become president of the United States, which was something good. So as African, black Africans, we were very, very happy that um, a man of my own color too is president of the United States. So it was a welcoming experience. Well, Did President Obama visit Cameroon uh, when you were there? No, President Obama, he has not visited Cameroon, but he visited Africa and visited Ghana and had visited Kenya as well. He could address the whole of Africa from Ghana. What would you say that the, the legacy then of the Obama presidency was for you personally and, and for people that you know of in Cameroon and other parts of Africa? Well, I, I don't really see what is the legacy of Obama in Africa bad for the sensational feeling it raised when he was elected. That okay. is just the legacy I think I see from my own perspective. I was in charge at this time and the students were very, very happy that Obama was uh, was elected. However, today if we talk of legacy, people ask what did Obama really do for Africa? 
That's the question mm. which I also ask. Maybe there was a response, but um, I don't see it until now. Maybe he gave a lot of aids to Africa. I know he came to Kenya. He could speak of policies, the fight against terrorism, um, okay. which I should say they did a good job fighting against terrorism, especially in Kenya helping us to be saved in okay. that part of the world. And also um, talking uh, more against um, slavery when he visited the port of exportation of slaves from Africa to Europe and America from Ghana. He could help Africans to revisit this legacy, to see the quality of that experience of slavery. So I think he helped us to revisit history and also okay. brought some kind of psychological boost to the people of Africa. Yeah, okay. this is what Very I said, legacy, yeah, and the okay. fight against terrorism. Well, President Donald J. Trump couldn't be any different than Barack Obama. So what's your experience of him uh, even living here in the United States? And how do you think he is viewed in Cameroon and Africa from the people that you know? Yes, this will depend especially on what group of people you will speak. I think if you are somebody who likes to talk about institution or doing the talk about institution, people will see maybe Obama different from President Trump. However, if you speak of people who are nationalists and patriotic of your country, and in fact, Africa, a lot of most of Africans are patriotic about their country. They have been inspired enormously by President Donald Trump to really think of their national identity, to really think of their national prosperity, which is what Africa needs at this moment. Because when President Trump, President Trump, I admire him in the sense that President Trump doesn't only speak, he walks the talk. This is different from someone who speaks more about institution. Like Obama came to Africa and said, Africans don't need strong men, but need institution. But those institutions are corrupt. They need to be reformed in Africa. Okay. They encourage dictatorship. So when we only talk about institution and don't bring the way of reforming that institution or walking the walk, talking and walking the talk about reforming institution, then I don't think we are going anywhere. We'll just remain on rhetoric. I see in President Donald Trump, many Africans really appreciate him as one who he challenged the institutions. And a lot of the dictators may be uh, challenging the dictators. Uh, President Trump is very hard on African dictators. And that's why I said he challenged dictators. Dictatorship in Africa is supported by the institution. So you must challenge the institution, which I feel President Trump is inspiring Africans to do about it, as well as really using nationalistic talk. People need to see their identity as a nation. People need to see their prosperity as a nation, which is something admiring more in President Donald Trump. He is making me to reflect upon Africa. Look at our resources being shipped into other countries, being mm. exploited by other countries. Africa, you have a lot of resources being exploited and taken to other parts of the world, which normally in the international trade, that is fine. But when one part of the world dominates, another part of the world like Europe dominating Africa in terms of trade, I think what I see in President Trump like really, really calling for the jobs from China to be brought back in America is a sense of national pride and identity, which I seriously identify with this in the sense that I am a patriot if my, from my country's standpoint of view. So I always like to admire someone with patriotism for his country, which I see in President Trump. Well, President Obama, I don't know. I didn't make experience of his presidency while in the United States because he left office when I came. I came to the okay. United States the year President Trump took over office. So I've been hearing more about President Donald Trump's policy, which deals with that need to make America what in its own terms great again, which expresses American first policies, putting America first. I think 
Africa Cameroon, if we think of putting our own country also first in terms of trade, bilateral relationship, multilateral relationship, it is something that will strengthen us. It should be a 50-50, you gain and I gain. I think this is what I see in President Trump too, when you talk about China, yes, the jobs must come back, even if they're out there, we must gain as well. So the two men are very, very different in terms of um, in terms of policies and even in terms of ways of being. They have their unique ident- God-given identity. God is God has blessed each one with his or identity. I-, I can't speak about this more. However, it's just to say these are people whose policies are very, very different and they have different appreciations from Africa. And from my own perspective as an African, an African from Cameroon, I think I admire more of that desire of putting your country first as a politician, as a policy maker. It's interesting. Trump has been so heavily criticized for that America first. And, you know, populism has been decried as something that is you know, kind of cancerous, but you're actually saying that it gives the country a sense of pride that they have their own cultural history, their own identity, and they should foster that. And so that you see that as a positive thing. Absolutely. It could even fit in with something that Sid Ignatius said. He said, seek first your own salvation before that of Absolutely. others. And maybe it's kind of like a principle of subsidiarity where you take care of things at the local level. So you have to get your own country settled and secure as a platform for being able to help anybody else. And maybe that's what everybody needs to do to kind of come back to the source, have their own sense of identity, self-esteem, get their own country in shape, you know, politically, economically, and then due to those bilateral relationships uh, as a way of strengthening the whole group. Absolutely. You've seen the racial tensions that are embroiling this country, these cities. Right now, at the time of this recording, we've got people getting shot in Portland and in Chicago and New York City and Kenosha, Wisconsin. What do you think of the phrase as America as being systemically racist? Do you experience it that way? Do you see it differently? Tell our audience from your perspective how you view the racial tensions going on in the United States at this particular moment in time. Thank you very much, Father Bill, for this question. I think experience is said to be the best teacher or the one of the best sources of knowledge. When you make an experience, you own it and you are able to speak about it. I've been in the United States, this is my fourth year now. Okay. I should say... Whether fortunately or unfortunately, I've not experienced what we talk of systemic racism. In the sense that I am in an institution where I am a black. I'm in Seattle University. I don't see any structure in place to put one race at a position which is more than that of another. In my class, I study with whites, I study with Asians, I study with people of different races, and we go on very, very well. So maybe other people may have different experience, but from the institution I am at this moment, I don't identify something that is systemic. Have you had any experience of racism in the United States in your four years here? In my whole four years in the United States, I have not experienced racism. And I say this very sincerely in terms of experience. But when I hear of people's story, then I can say from that story which people are saying, well, their story portray what they say, that some may experience racism. Okay, then we have the tension and the question, is America systemic racist or not. So it will depend on the person you're talking, their stories and their experience. For me, my experience at this moment, I would say I've not experienced systemic racism. Okay. Father Colleen, what what advice would you give Americans who are on one side of this issue or the other? 
what word as a pastor, as a Jesuit, would you say? What What's your best advice with people who feel this is a serious problem? Father Bill, my first advice to America, my country, this beautiful country that is hosting me at this moment, would be that approaching issue of racism, we should put aside emotions and passions. I think there is more to gain when there is conversation sincerely around the issue of racism. It shouldn't be something we feel, if it exists, can be taken up within one day or one second. We have the history around this Martin Luther King. He is the example of how we can combat civil situations like racism. He called for non-violence. So my first point will be Americans or those involved in the fight against racism should approach it non-violently. And as a Christian, as a Jesuit, you know, Christ's approach has been non-violent. If we approach non-violent, enter into dialogue, avoid expression of too much of emotion, too much okay. of passion, we will be doing something great. And for my Christians, brothers and sisters who are Americans, I think we have to take it also to the Lord in prayers, praying that this issue be resolved. Resolving racism doesn't mean there will be a magical solution from somewhere. It comes from each and every one of us, how we treat anyone who is not of the same race like me will really, really determine how we overcome this problem of racism. And for us Christians, for me, Jesuit, it is the way that I deal with people who are not like me that determine if I'm really the child of God. Violence right. has no place in the life of God. And maybe we can just end with that great phrase of Martin Luther King Jr. that we should judge people by the content of their character, not the color of their skin. Absolutely. Great advice for our listeners. And I want to ask you a final question here. To always end back on the spiritual, since you're going to be a spiritual guy, retreat director, and you've done that much of your life. Yes. What would you say, Father Colleen, has been the most powerful spiritual experience of your life? What was it, and how has it shaped you, your life, and your mission, and your future, what you want to do as a Jesuit? Thank you very much for this question. My most powerful spiritual experience when I discovered God as love. I discovered God as love during my 30-day retreat. And for those people who are listening to us, that would be St. Ignatius' spiritual exercises, a four-week, 30-day retreat that every Jesuit novice does when he enters the society and a number of years later during a period called tertianship. So you experience God's love in a very direct way during that 30-day retreat. Absolutely. I discovered how I wounded God in my actions, my deeds, my words, what we normally say being a sinner. I actually identified myself as a sinner in that first week of the exercise, which deals with sin, but was very, very surprised and moved with wonder mm. at the God who embraced me despite my sins, my limitations, my shortcomings. So I could identify myself a sinner yet called, loved nice. by God. This experience has conditioned me until today to desire to live with God, that is love, and to receive others despite their weaknesses, despite their sin, in that image which I discover God in my retreat, God who is love, God who is Father, God who embraces us. This also have made me to really, really desire the ministry of spiritual direction to help people to articulate this God who is love in their experience. Nice. So you see how it fashions my life of faith, my vision, and my mission as a Jesuit. So that experience of God my very first time to see God as love is very powerful for me until today.
Thank you very much. We've been talking with Father Colleen Nassame, and we ended on this very high spiritual note about God being love. Father Nassami, would you do us the favor? We will pray for you. Would you do us the favor of offering a final prayer for everyone who is listening and a blessing? We'd be very grateful if you could do that. I will. Thank you very much for inviting us to pray. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you because you are love. We pray for the grace that the world will come to see each human person as created to your image and likeness. We pray that our conversation we have just had through this podcast may be the inspiration for all who are listening to us, that they will come to you and remain with you forever. We ask this in God's name. Amen. This has been Sacred Story Institute Jesuit Podcast with Father Bill Watson. If you liked our program, please subscribe to our podcast channel. And may God bless you.